From Brennan to the Boca Chill, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush. From Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for listening to episode 44, The Rum Running King of Puget Sound, Part 1. Professional rum runners, as we see them today in studies of the dry decade, were outlaws to whom millions of Americans gave enduring sympathy. With fast boats, they defied the stern pronouncement of Prohibition Commissioner John F. Kramer, who vowed that the law would be obeyed in the cities, large and small and that liquor would not be sold, nor given away, nor hauled in anything on the surface of the earth or in the air. Their successes in what numerous studies called the respectable crime were a significant measure of the determination of the American public to challenge Commissioner Kramer and the Constitution of the United States. It should follow, then, that a study of a specific rum runner might cut across the social fabric of a region and suggest the texture of its political life and public morality. This is especially true of Roy Olmsted of the Evergreen State, whose career can be delineated by widely available records and several books and novels feature the scoundrel. Newspapermen in the 1920s knew him as the King of the Rum Runners or the Booze Baron or the Good Bootlegger who had served a social purpose. Each of these nicknames suggests why Olmsted was one of the popular heroes of the time. He grossed over $200,000 a month for several years while he controlled an intricate rum-running empire and scrupulously guarded the integrity of his products, selling without adulteration the liquor he brought from Canada. More significantly, toward the end of his career as a rum-runner, the case of Olmsted v. the United States moved through three levels of the federal judiciary and brought before the public conscience a relatively newfangled modern problem, that of wiretapping by federal agents. At the age of 20, Roy Olmsted was a large and powerful young man of keen, undisciplined intelligence and ambition. Disgusted with the labor problems in the Seattle shipyards where he had been working, he joined the Seattle Police Department in 1906. There he distinguished himself, in the words of one chief of police, as quick and responsive, upright, bright, and competent, and he advanced through the ranks during some of the most violent years of Seattle politics. The open town of Mayor Hiram Gill, the reforms of George Cotterill, then Hiram Gill again, and finally, Holy Ole Hansen. As Seattle grew from a city of about 100,000 to one over three times that size in 1920, Olmsted learned to know it intimately. Olmsted was a sergeant in the police force by 1910 and a lieutenant by 1916 when, after a vote by the people, the state began its noble experiment with prohibition. Though Olmsted was not on the city's dry squad, he was a personal friend of Mayor Gill and a close observer of the city's problems with the new law. Bootlegging and rum running had become both popular and profitable, and Olmsted watched the increasingly vicious competition between two rival gangs. One was headed by Jack Marquette, a former policeman whom Olmsted knew well, the other by two brothers, Logan and Fred Billingsley. The Billingsley organization used a Seattle drugstore as their headquarters for international operations involving shipments of liquor from Cuba to Canada. Shipments which suffered remarkable losses en route. Jack Marquette, unable to compete on this scale, supplemented his operating fund by hijacking Billingsley Liquor. The competition turned quickly into a shooting war which left its dead and wounded on Seattle streets. The war, in turn, exposed the weaknesses of both organizations and allowed the police to trap the Marquette gang with enough liquid and documentary evidence then to implicate the Billingsleys and to put both groups in jail. 
In all of this, the organizational structures, the international connections, the feudal competition, there were valuable insights for Roy Olmsted. The demise of the Billingsleys and Jack Marquette left the rum-running business of Seattle in an untidy situation. Marginal operations were in fierce competition, purchasing procedures were crude and inefficient, and distribution was totally lacking in sophistication. Chaotic at worst and haphazard at best. Then, in January of 1920, the National Prohibition Act, usually called the Volstead Act, gave the Treasury Department the responsibility for enforcing the constitutional provisions against the manufacture, sale, or transportation of alcoholic beverages. With the appointment of federal prohibition agents, the risks of entrepreneurship increased sharply, but so did the rewards. The conditions promised unlimited opportunities for someone with administrative talent who knew the business in its full scope. From the wet gunny sacks in the bottoms of dark speedboats through the garages and back alleys to offices of law enforcement officials. Olmsted was 34 years old in 1920. He had a wife and two daughters. The youngest lieutenant in the Seattle Police Department, he was widely respected for his intelligence, his initiative, and his responsibility. He made frequent appearances in court to recommend probation for certain prisoners, and because he reasoned well and spoke with authority, the court was pleased to accept his judgment. This, then, was some measure of the power and prestige he sought. But in exercising them, he came to a great moral crisis in his life. When he discovered that his influence with the court was worth large sums of money to certain parties, Olmsted had to face the true nature of his ambition. Never a man to suffer the throes of anguished ambivalence, his decision was quick. He soon began to sell his authority, and in keeping with his character and the times, he sought high-risk investments for his money. Rum running was quite an easy choice. On the 22nd of March, 1920, at 2 o'clock in the morning, Olmsted and several of his associates were unloading liquor from a tugboat on the beach of Browns Bay, near Meadowdale, Washington. Just as the unloading had been completed, there was a confusion of lights, shouts, and gunfire. Prohibition agents who had waited for days in the woods crouched behind a roadblock and fired wildly at the boat and the rum runners. Olmsted leaped into an automobile and went roaring through the brush around the barrier, but the agents were able to identify him before he escaped. Behind him on the beach, he left the largest shipment of liquor ever seized in the Pacific Northwest. Olmsted was apprehended easily at his home that afternoon. He was immediately dismissed from the Seattle Police Department and arraigned on a federal charge. Released on bail, he found that these inconveniences happily made it possible for him to give his full and undivided time to his lucrative business. After he had entered a plea of guilty and been fined $500, he discovered that he now stood as a public figure. The newspapers had made much of the Meadowdale story, playing on the baby lieutenant with the brilliant career. They even listed the brands of the captured liquor which he had planned to sell in Seattle. After Meadowdale, Olmsted had enough experience in rum running to form an accurate estimate of its potential. His initiation had given him a measure of the field, the easy sources of supply, the untapped markets, the exciting profits. He quickly found 11 investors who would each stake $1,000. He retained an attorney and assembled a staff of boatsmen, navigators, loaders, dispatchers, bookkeepers, and salesmen, including some former Canadian policemen, and began a shrewd and vigorous economic war against his competitors in the Pacific Northwest. One device was to use the weaknesses of Canadian export law. In 1920, the Dominion government influenced the price of bootleg liquor by taking an export duty of $20 a case on all liquor signed for the United States. This was an undisguised determination to make the most of the Volstead Act, for Canada took no such duty on liquor cleared for any other country. United States rum runners, of course, paid the duty without protest. 
Olmsted's coup was to hire ships which loaded in Vancouver, B.C. and cleared for Mexico, carrying 2,000 to 4,000 cases a load, all of it free of export duty. In an operation that suggests those of the Billingsley brothers, the cargo was discharged on Darcy Island, a lonely spot of forest in Harrow Strait, northeast of Victoria and well out of the main steamer lane. Darcy was uniquely insulated from either public or private curiosity by the dangerous reefs that surrounded it and by the small leprosy station that was maintained there by the Canadian government. The station keeper became Olmsted's fast friend and the cargo was secure until the swift boats could run it to American ports on Puget Sound. Olmsted preferred the stormy, windy nights for running, nights when the Coast Guardsmen and Federal Prohibition agents would normally seek the warmth and shelter of quiet coves. This neat arrangement, in addition to the discount Olmsted received in Vancouver for the large volume of his cash purchases, allowed him to undersell his competitors in Seattle by as much as 30%. There was soon chaos in the ranks. Many quit the business in confusion and disgust, some turned in bitterness to piracy, and others joined Olmsted. Even before Canadian revenue officials expressed their concern by occupying Darcy Island, Olmsted had his empire. Many of the rum runners and bootleggers on Puget Sound were working for him. He acquired a large ocean freighter and formed an alliance with the big runners all along the west coast. The magnitude of his operations, as later recorded by a federal judge, included refinements that any new business might envy. Scouts, transfermen, officemen, salesmen, telephone operators, dispatchers, checkers, collectors, bookkeepers, and an attorney. A farm was purchased at which to cash the liquor. A fleet of boats was chartered and numerous trucks and automobiles. There was evidence of a daily delivery at Seattle of 200 cases of liquor and of transactions that each month amounted to nearly $200,000. In what the New York Times later called one of the most gigantic rum-running conspiracies in the country, Olmsted was truly a king. By 1924, the organization functioned so well that Olmsted went almost entirely into wholesaling. He shipped out of Vancouver, B.C. via Discovery Island, just east of Victoria, and sold only to retailers with whom he had established a working relationship. As the money began to fill the old clothes hamper which he casually called the safe, the king took his place in grand society. He bought a spacious colonial residence in Mount Baker, one of Seattle's high-prestige districts. He became president and owner of the American Radio Telephone Company, Seattle's first radio station, which he had backed as good public relations and as something that might prove useful should law or circumstance change his good fortune. After a divorce in 1924, he married Elsie Campbell, a vivacious young woman with a taste for excitement whom he had met in Vancouver, Canada. Her real name was Elise, though everyone called her Elsie, and the marriage inspired one of the most delightful myths of the decade. Elsie, a newspaper later claimed, had been an employee and protege of the Prohibition Administrator of the Northwest District, planted by him in Olmsted's organization as an undercover agent. This story grew out of testimony offered during the trial of 1925-26 that Mrs. Olmsted had for a while in 1922 assisted the federal agents, but the reference was to the rum runner's first wife, not Elsie. Olmsted dressed and entertained in princely fashion and walked the streets of Seattle with a big smile, his pockets full of money. During his walks, he might hail, for example, the Reverend Dr. Mark Matthews, the aging black-maned lion who had roared for years at Hiram Gill and who led the largest Presbyterian congregation in the state. 
Olmsted would heartily encourage Dr. Matthews not to take life so seriously. He might drop a few sparkling remarks about his irregular church attendance and about the quality of the medicinal brandy used by the minister's suffering parishioners. Or Olmsted might spend a few minutes with the mayor of Seattle, Dr. Edwin J. Brown, the exuberant advertising dentist whose passion for public speaking and liberal politics had made him well known for his boisterous soapbox oratory on Skid Road while Olmsted was still a policeman. Doc Brown quarreled publicly with both the Prohibition agents and the Anti-Saloon League, but he and Olmsted understood each other. Or as he strolled along, Olmsted might give personal attention to the needs of his more distinguished customers, such as a millionaire airplane manufacturer and the exclusive Arctic Club. At night, he would go out with his boats to supervise the international hide-and-seek in the Strait of Juan de Fuca and in Puget Sound. Thus, he became the dapper idol of the city he knew so well. Public officials, professional men, merchants and bankers waved cheery greetings to him. Twenty men would speak to him in one block on 2nd Avenue. He had the power that goes with good liquor, easy to get, and good money, easy to give. He was the toast of parties where popping corks warmed the gregarious spirit. A bootleg king, it made a man feel important to casually remark, as Roy Olmsted was telling me today. Olmsted's prestige was much more than that accorded the ordinary rum runner. His audacity touched everything he did with a cheerful sense of excitement. He sometimes brought his boats to the docks in downtown Seattle, unloading them in broad daylight into trucks marked simply meat or fresh fish. He would roar with laughter as time and again he eluded the law. And even more than this, his unique code of ethics endeared him to many thirsty citizens. He never corrupted his merchandise. People could trust it. He never allowed his employees to arm themselves, lecturing to them sternly that no amount of money was worth a human life. His business arrangements were conducted with a firm integrity, for he was, in his own way, a moralist. It was because Olmsted was so attractive personally and because he scrupulously avoided the sordid behavior of others in the same business, no murder, no narcotics, no ring of prostitution or gambling, that many people could not regard him as an authentic criminal. The times being what they were, some felt that the Olmsted organization was in many ways the best thing that could have happened to rum running in the Pacific Northwest. There were, of course, real hazards in his way of life. The pirates, for example, Olmsted regarded as more dangerous than the police. The hijacking was sporadic and vicious, and except for an occasional news story based largely on hearsay, it was not open to investigation. There were, however, enough boats around the sound that carried masked gunmen and hid in isolated coves to cause grave concern in the rum-running industry. This was another reason Olmsted preferred the dark and stormy nights for shipments around Puget Sound. His attitude was that he must live with the situation and fight it not with guns, but with fast boats, shrewd planning, and tight control over the patterns of distribution. While Olmsted was king, hijacked liquor was not easy to sell in Seattle. The city police were a hazard to other rum runners, but not to Olmsted. Olmsted could find a friend by telephoning any police station at any hour. This convenience was clarified later in court by the federal agent who had tapped the telephone line and who offered the following testimony. Roy phoned the police station. Someone came to the phone and said, Hello, Roy, what is on your mind? Roy said, One of your fellows picked up one of my boys. The office replied, Who is it? Roy replied that it was B. I don't give a damn what they do, but I want to know before he is booked. The officer finished, stating, I'll take care of it for you, Roy. The wiretapper reported another conversation that began as a call from a policeman to Olmsted's headquarters for instructions. Down under the 4th Avenue Bridge is a car with seven gallons of moonshine in it, and I was wondering if it is yours. Roy said, no, I don't think it is ours because we don't handle moonshine. 
The government contended during the trial of 1925 that at least some of the city police took care of Olmsted's men and fell relentlessly upon his few competitors, gaily called outlaws to protect the empire. The wiretapper testified that on one occasion when police discipline presented a problem, Olmsted had said to his men, we will just have to take things easy and look out after our best customers only until Doc gets back. Dr. Edwin J. Brown, the mayor, was absent from the city at the time. To meet the hazards presented by the Treasury Department, Olmsted depended upon what he regarded as the mediocre staff in the office of the Prohibition Administrator. The wiretapper, himself a member of the staff, repeated Olmsted's judgment. Said to Roy, he says, the Federals will get you one of these days. Roy said no, those sons of bitches are too slow to catch the cold. Indeed, they were too slow in the beginning. Both the budget and personnel of the Seattle office reflected the reluctance of the federal government to make the law meaningful. The chief administrator, Roy Lyle, was a political appointee whose training and experience was as a librarian and a real estate salesman. An amateur politician did not serve him well in the pursuit of rum runners and bootleggers. It was generally recognized in Seattle that Lyle's main function was to please the Anti-Saloon League and keep fences mended for United States Senator Wesley Jones. The management of the agents he left largely to William Whitney, his legal advisor and chief assistant. Whitney, too, was a political appointee. He was a Seattle lawyer who had been defeated in his bid for Congress in 1916 and who had been prominent in county Republican affairs for a decade. He had much more affinity for police work than Lyle did, and because of this, perhaps, he made more enemies than friends. Energetic and untiring, he was usually direct and, to his enemies at least, frequently ruthless. It was a matter of serious concern around Seattle that Whitney's agents were a disreputable lot. Some of them were accused at various times of bribery, sadism, murder, and contributing to the delinquency of minors. They also helped keep juries prejudiced against the government. They certainly brought bad press to Whitney, who planned and led the raids and shaped the cases for the federal courts. In one sense, Olmsted's triumphs attest to the uneven caliber of the Prohibition Bureau. Olmsted was quite unaware of their relationship between Lyle and Whitney and the man responsible for their appointments. Wesley Jones, the state's senior senator, was deeply involved in the national prohibition movement. He stood consistently with the extreme supporters of the Anti-Saloon League and of strict enforcement of the Volstead Act. In 1922, for example, he urged President Harding to station troops along the Canadian border to halt the flow of liquor. He later urged Congress to condemn Spain for its boycott of Iceland when Iceland went dry. His tense statements distinguished him as a leading champion of the cause. The respectable citizen who denounced the officers for doing their duty is sowing the seed of crime, anarchy, and Bolshevism, which will bring a whirlwind of riot and disorder that means chaos and murder. So thoroughly, in fact, was he identified with Prohibition, with the Anti-Saloon League, and with strict enforcement that to challenge any of these was to challenge Senator Jones himself. As successful rum-running and bootlegging continued to embarrass the senator in his home state, Olmsted would feel his wrath. Olmsted's notoriety came quickly to Jones's attention. A Seattle informant wrote to him in December of 1922 that a majority of King County Republicans were for clearing out the Prohibition Office, whose failures were a disgrace and the talk of the whole town. Jones, however, liked Lyle and Whitney personally, and the temperance forces in the state to whom Jones owed a great deal were enthusiastic supporters of Lyle's office. Another likely reason for his unwillingness to move against Lyle and Whitney was that in 1922, state politics took an unexpected turn when Clarence C. Dill of Spokane defeated Miles Poindexter and became the first Democrat from Washington to be elected to the United States Senate in the 20th century. 
Dill, himself a dry, began to question the competence of Lyle and Whitney and asked the Commissioner of Internal Revenue to investigate the expenses of the Seattle office. When the government refused to make public the report of this inquiry, opponents of Senator Jones suggested that he had used his power to suppress it. Jones insisted, of course, that he had not, and he countered with praise for Lyle and Whitney. Olmsted was delighted that he and the senator agreed in this regard. But Lyle and Whitney began to work with real anxiety for a major victory which could redeem their reputations. Olmsted felt the effects of their renewed activities early in 1924 when Whitney began to charter faster boats. The sport at night became a grim and more evenly matched contest. Olmsted remained very much in the game, but it was expensive. A new runner he had had built and named with some affection the Elsie was supercharged for greater speed. It exploded and burned in Puget Sound. At about the same time, he was approached by Richard Fryant, a freelance wiretapper who had six years' experience in industrial espionage as a tapper for the New York Telephone Company. Fryant, according to Olmsted, showed him a transcript of conversations which had been conducted on Olmsted's office telephone during a period of several weeks. The transcript was for sale, Olmsted later alleged, for $10,000. Olmsted replied that he knew something about the rules of evidence, that such a transcript could never be used in court against him, that wiretapping was against state law, and that Fryant could go right to hell. He learned shortly that Fryant had gone to William Whitney, who made him a federal prohibition agent. Another possibility is that Fryant was already an agent and that his interview with Olmsted was an attempt to seduce the rum runner into bribery. Olmsted had the telephone company remove the tap found in the ladies' room of the Henry building, but he knew there would be others. His caution, though, was only minimal. Still trusting his understanding of the rules of evidence, he suppressed only those calls that might lead Whitney to a productive raid. The dispatching continued, and the calls to the police were undisguised, marked only by profane references to William Whitney, who was sure to receive them. The tap even had certain advantages. Some of Olmsted's hilarious moments came when he telephoned fake directions to his men about the landing of his boats. Assured that the federal agents had rushed out to intercept him, he then went casually to the street and a public phone and gave the correct directions, and smiled with the confidence that Whitney would spend the night on a lonely beach clutching a heavy revolver and shivering in the rain. One night, Olmsted's men left a lighted yellow lantern on Whitney's car as a jeering symbol of their ridicule. But William Whitney, stalking his prey, could absorb the ridicule. In October of 1924, he had a valuable windfall when Canadian officials seized Olmsted's boat, the Eva B, with three men and 784 cases aboard on a customs charge. The three men talked, and Whitney began to sift through the evidence. Thereafter, he kept two men on the phone tap constantly. In November, he led a raid on Olmsted's home and arrested Olmsted, his wife, and 15 guests who were entertaining themselves by reading children's bedtime stories over Olmsted's radio station. The raiders held the group in a room while they seized boxes of the organization's records and while Whitney, impersonating Olmsted, telephoned well-known bootleggers and asked them to bring liquor to the house. Curiously, Whitney's wife was a member of the raiding party and used the telephone to summon more liquor for her husband to seize. This is Elsie, Mrs. Whitney was reported as saying. Come on over, we're having a party. The raid also included the office of Jerry Finch, Olmsted's attorney. Whitney was jubilant. He was now confident that he had enough evidence for a grand jury. The night he and Lyle took out the rum runner's yellow lantern which Olmsted had left them to contemplate, lit it, and ran it up the flagpole that topped their office. Olmsted and Finch, of course, cried loudly that their civil liberties had been violated. One measure of public reaction is the statement that Olmsted's friend, Mayor E.J. Brown, gave to the newspapers. 
I would call this making a grandstand play. They could raid my phone in the same way, come to my home and search it, find no liquor, and then telephone to bootleggers who would bring it. They could raid the Reverend Dr. Matthews' home the same way. But Lyle and Whitney were accustomed to statements from Mr. Brown. On the 19th of January, 1925, a federal grand jury returned an indictment against Roy Olmsted and 90 other defendants for conspiracy to violate the National Prohibition Act since June of 1923. The conspiracy was charged in two counts, to possess, transport, and import intoxicating liquors, and to barter, sell, deliver, and furnish them. Among the overt acts listed were the activities of the Eva B. and the leasing of a ranch for business purposes, these acts being against the peace and dignity of the United States of America. This promised to be the biggest liquor trial in the history of the country under the 18th Amendment. Part 2 of The Rum Running King of Puget Sound will be released next week and will dive into the trial and later life of Roy Olmsted. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, the Wesley L. Jones Papers at the University of Washington Libraries, the Tacoma News Tribune, HistoryLink.org, Seattle Heritage by Ralph Bushnell Potts, the New York Times, and the Seattle Union Record. Thank you for listening to Episode 44, The Rum Running King of Puget Sound Part 1. Part 2 will be released next week. A special thank you goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets, and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck, the singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck, and Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound.